The reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 20, and then chapter 7, 25 to 28. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, but you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in her body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. And verse 25. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give you a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. But because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want you I want to spare you this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning to those watching online. It's, uh, it's lovely to be with you um, this morning. Uh, well, we're, we're, we're dropping in, aren't we, to this first letter um, to the church in Corinth. And um, there's lots about it, the, the context that we, we can't uh, go into right now. But um, suffice to say, it the letter to the first Corinthians to the Corinthians is is um, tells us a lot about um, God's people, about what it means to be God's people, what it what it means to to live uh, as a new humanity, as a new um, community of believers that is distinct from the the world uh, around it. And Paul throughout, and particularly here in these couple of chapters, is, is talking about lots of uh, big um, 
big issues around relationships, marriage, um, uh, uh, sex and singleness and all very big. And one of the things I want to say is that it's really important, isn't it? It's really important that as we think about these topics and have been thinking about these topics, that we remember that these affect real people. These are about real lives, aren't they? That, that we, don't, we don't enter these subjects thinking about them in a, in a kind of abstract way or a cold or detached way because many of these things are, affect us deeply. It affects you and, and me deeply in different ways, people we know. And so it's, I think it's really important that we, we speak about them graciously, uh, lovingly, kindly, uh, because it's important uh, that we speak truth in love, and particularly as a church family, um, because it's not easy, is it? Because we often come with um, different experiences and different perspectives on these issues. So let's just take a moment to pray into that as a church family. Father God, we, we do thank you for your word, and we recognize at times it is hard for us And yet we know it's good for us. And we pray as a church family, as we think about these things, that you'll help us to remember these impact real lives. Um, And we pray that you'll help us to be full of grace, full of your love. Help us to look continually to you and your word. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We had quite a lot read, um, but I'm going to concentrate a lot to start with on verses uh, 9 and 10 under the heading Living for the Kingdom. And you find it in your Bibles on page 1148. I think it's true, isn't it, to say that when we hear a list like this in verses 9 and, and, and 10, we hear, we, we've probably experienced, haven't we, many, many talks. Um, uh, that uh, look at this list of wrongdoing rather like uh, an entrance exam um, to heaven. Uh, at least that's sometimes how we, we can approach this. And, uh, you know, if you do these things, you're not going to heaven. That's it. In other words, the idea is that the, the kingdom of God is synonymous with the idea of getting into heaven. Um, you mustn't do this, this, and this, and this, and you must live like this, this, and this, or that's it. Uh, And we we kind of treat it sometimes like a a, a checklist. And in in many ways, that's a very bad way to to read um, this text. Yet, having, having said that, we do need to remember there is a warning here. There's an implicit warning um, that we need to think about, and we'll get to that shortly. But the main point being made here and in the, the whole of uh, 1 Corinthians, you could argue, is that um, about the, what is meant by the kingdom of God. And what is that? It is about, the kingdom of God is about God remaking, restoring his world to what it, what it meant to be under his rule. He's remaking his world. Uh, let me explain a, a, a little bit. Christian understanding of salvation often isn't a, a kind of escape to heaven, as it were. The purpose of salvation 
is to renew and to restore a, a broken world as well, to remake it. And notice here, Paul uses the word inherit. Did you note that? notice that? Wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of earth, which means that it's not here yet, or at least it's not fully here. Yes, it's begun, it's been started, it's been what we say is inaugurated. Um, by his death and resurrection of Jesus. But it is, of course, no way complete, is it? And Paul here is uh, talking about a, a remade world, a kingdom of, that is coming, a future, perfect world of, of human flourishing that is the very best place, a better place, a place that we all actually hope and long for, a place in perfect relationship with the King, with King Jesus. And, of course, that means in perfect relationship with each other, um, where there will be no more weeping, no more pain, injustice, wrongdoing, and evil. Inherit. It's an interesting word. It's an important word because it reminds us that it means something you don't earn, doesn't it? At least my understanding of inheritance is that you, you don't earn uh, your inheritance. It, it, it comes to you, doesn't it? It's left to you by your parents or some great aunt. It's a, it's a gift to you. Um, and it's about, therefore, it's about inheritance. It's about relationship, isn't it? You have a relationship with the person that you inherit from. Um, not because so much that you were good or, or bad, or, but because you belong, yes? You belong in that relationship, and so you inherit it. And so often, unfortunately, these verses often provided, have provided an unhelpful launch pad for countless moralistic sermons. Uh, and Paul is not providing us here with qualifications of an entrance exam. You know, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, and you're in. Because um, if you think about it for a moment, if, if that was true, who here would make it through that list uh, and be able to tick them off? None of us would be able to do that. None of us can pass the grade. That's the point of salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, isn't it? Through faith. But having said that, there is a warning here for us about the reality of habitual actions, things that are ongoing and wrongdoing that will that will not find no place in God's kingdom. You see, Christian believers are people who are are being transformed. We're being transformed. We're being readied for that new kingdom, that wonderful place that we'll inherit. We're being readied for it. And if you want to have confidence that you belong to God, that you're, you're an inheritor, there will, be, there will be an evidence of it in the way that we live, in the way that we love, in the way that we have faith. I suppose put it, put it like this. Um, how do you know that the Spirit of God 
has put you into the family of God? How do you know that the Spirit of God is in you? How do you know that you're an heir to it? Uh, who will inherit? I mean, effectively, how do you know that you're a Christian? Um, it's a really important question, isn't it? How do you know that you have the Spirit of God in you? God is preparing us for a perfect world where relationships, uh, money, power, all that is used in a, in a life-giving, life-flourishing manner that it was meant to be used for, where there will be no sort of spiritual breakdown, no uh, psychological trauma, no anxiety, no collapsing of society. Instead, where relationships and, and all that we have and all that the influence that we have, the power is weaved uh, for us together to bring peace and wholeness. That is what the kingdom is going to be like. And if, you, if we don't use relationships money and power now in accordance with the future kingdom, how can we have confidence that the Holy Spirit is in us and transforming us, preparing us for that future kingdom that should already have begun in us, even if it is only small? So when it says this list of in verses 9 and 10, he says, do not be deceived. So he says, it is a warning. Don't be deceived. Neither A, B, and C. You know, you may look back and you may say, well, I, I gave my, I, I made a confession back in 1990 or whatever. Um, I, I converted to Christianity. But unless to some degree there is evidence of change in you towards X, Y, and Z in the way that we use our relationships, the way that we, we operate our money and, and our power and the influence that we have, how can we be sure? How can we have confidence if that is not happening, if change isn't evidence? We cannot have confidence that we're heirs, that we'll inherit. That's what Paul is saying to this church in Corinth. Becoming a Christian, being converted, isn't like sort of buying a ticket. You get the ticket, you say, thank you very much, see you later, and just carry on the way you're living as if the way you live doesn't matter. That's not what it's about. It's meant to have an internal change that sees some external evidence for it. No, being a Christian is about change. It's actually about radical transformation of going this way to now going this way from the inside out. It's about repentance. It's about seeking to stop these things and picking up these things because these things are about the kingdom of God, the place where you are heading towards and the place where we will be together when it fully appears. Now, to take a look, close look at this um, list on page 1148, and, and what do you see? I mean, of course, immediately in our age, and, and perhaps because of the series and the season that we're in, we tend to f- fixate upon the phrases like, nor men who have sex with men, or we focus in on the sexual immoral. 
But, you know, notice what else is there. And it's really important we notice what else is there that's put alongside these things. It says, uh, nor thieves nor greedy. Well, what is that ultimately? That's materialism, isn't it? That's materialism. Slander is an interesting phrase, as that actually can be translated as gossiping. But very rarely do we perhaps talk about that and how important that is, that transformation in our lives around gossiping. When we hear the word swindler, we tend to think that that must be talking about some sort of illegal practices, but it's not. It's actually just talking about being harsh in the way that you operate businesses. Uh, uh, It's about a harshness in the way that we, we deal with people. Why are we saying this? Why am I pointing this out? I'm pointing this out because there is no place in this world that looks at this list as as kind of equally bad. We all tend, don't we, to, to fall off into particular areas of badness. And often the, uh, in the, the West, which is more what we sometimes call as the liberal West, tends to think it's stupid to really talk about sexual immorality because to say, well, that's a private matter. What I do with my body in my time with consenting adults is of no concern of anyone else. Yeah, and so, but we tend to be more concerned about other things. Generally, you know, harsh business practices, we need to be uh, of the greedy and who trample on the poor. And that's what generally. Now, those in more traditional places, they tend to think that it's stupid to, to talk about gossip and slander on a par with sexual immorality. Often slander is not seen as somewhat something on the same level. Why is that? Well, because we all tend to sort of flip-flop into one area or the other. No place in the world reflects this set of values in its entirety, does it? And so it makes us ask the question, what do they all have in common? And that's perhaps something that's a better question to ask. What do they have in common? Well, they all have in common that they put the individual over and above the community. And you can see that. Um, they all put the individual over the community. Greed, ruthless business practice, swindlers using your money for selfish gain. Instead of what? Spreading it around, helping others, seeing who's in need, looking for opportunities to bless others and help one another. That is putting yourself over the community, isn't it? And so Paul's mind, when we see sexual immoral, we're doing the very same thing. We're using sex for selfish gain, not for the establishment of permanent monogamous relationships that uphold society for the very best of human flourishing for stable community. So when we have sexual relationships outside of what God intended, as we read here, we're not sort of just breaking a rule. It's actually on the same level as as greed and, and of slander those things that pull down society, those things that destroy community and mess up people's lives. Putting our selfish needs over and above the needs 
of the community. And if you're living like that, if we live like that, it doesn't mean necessarily not a Christian, but what Paul is doing here is he's saying he's warning us not to be deceived, not to be sure. It takes away your assurance, doesn't it? When you don't live in the way that the kingdom calls, at least if we're doing them habitually. I can look back on my life in the past and, and in recent days when, when there's some d- deep, dark nights of the soul, um, when I've done some very bad things or thought some very bad thoughts that lead you and I into wrongdoing. And, and we wrestle with those and those things, what do they do when they happen? For me, when that happens in my life, the very first thing that goes is my assurance. And because what the devil does is he says, oh, you can't possibly be saved because you're doing this, this, and this. And your assurance goes. And Paul doesn't want our assurance to go. You know, you can know in your head that you're saved by faith through grace, but my confidence gets shot to pieces. You see, if God is in you by the Holy Spirit, it will be preparing you for a future kingdom. That it has begun. That it brings about change. It does bring conviction of sins. It does bring nights of, of, of darkness when you're wrestling with those things. But that's the Holy Spirit bringing it into view so that it changes you and starts to mould you and make you into the the person that God has created you to be. It will work its way out in your life. Transformation will happen. It may be slow and small at times, but he is doing that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And of course, sex is important Uh, And in a sense, that's why we're going through this series of living in love and faith. But we must remember it's not all important. And and this is where we very rarely get get it right. Either we say it's all important, we talk about it all the time, or we think it's not important at all and we sweep it under the carpet. And the Bible is so beautifully balanced in these things. And that's why we just need to read it and grapple with it. And let it speak to us and to come under its authority. These are the things of the kingdom, is what Paul is saying. These are the things that will work out in your life to bring change. And that is the way you know that you're inheriting the kingdom of God, who belong to King Jesus. Now, the verses 20 to 20, 12 to 20, um, others have covered in, in previous sermons, so I'm not going to spend um, time talking about those now. Please do go and look at those or listen to those talks. But I want to say a word here about singleness and the kingdom, because we haven't really talked about much of that in this series, and just say a few brief comments about what Paul is saying here, which is remarkable, really. He, again, is setting things in balance here. In that little section from uh, chapter 7, in summary, what he's saying is, if you're married, 
don't try and be single. And if you're single, don't try everything to be married. And it seems in some ways uh, that that seems, how do those two things hold together? But that's what he's saying. He's holding two things in tension. In traditional cultures and and very much in the Christian church in the West, what are we, we're guilty of, we're very much guilty of, of sometimes blindly reinforcing the idea that being single is somehow weird or being single is somehow a lesser state than being married. We do that, don't we? Even in church. Uh, and that somehow how you're kind of a, a nobody until you, you're married, or that something there's something wrong with you. And sometimes it, we don't explicitly say that, but sometimes in, it's subtle in the way that it comes across. And that was certainly the case in Paul's day, and frankly, it can be the case in church. And it's wrong. Why? Because what it's doing is it's making an idol out of marriage. It's turning marriage into an idol. And an idol is, well, it's something that you have to get in order to be fulfilled and and satisfied. But of course, on the other hand, some have such a low view of marriage that they're very cynical about marriage or count it as as nothing. You know, I just don't want to be tied down. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And so Paul never goes down either of those routes, and neither should we. Marriage is important, but we're not to make an idol out of it. In Ephesians 5, um, Paul there talks about instructions to married couples. And in that passage, he points out the, the perfect oneness, the perfect unity, the perfect wholeness that we'll have when we come face to face with God on that final day. Just listen to what he says. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, this is a profound mystery. And he says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Talking about Christ and the church, what does he mean? What in the world does this mean? He's saying that marriage and sex points to what it will be like when we meet God face to face. And that is our ultimate fulfillment. That will be our total moment of satisfaction and fulfillment. On the one hand, that means, yes, marriage and sex is really wonderful and it's precious. But also, on the other hand, marriage and sex can never, ever satisfy us. Because ultimate fulfillment can only be found, whether we're married or single, in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a profound mystery, he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. This means if we're single, and and, uh, often can be a very hard place to be, we do need to cry out. When we think, oh, I'm never going to get this, we have to cry out to the Lord to help us to see the kingdom future and how wonderful and beautiful and satisfying and fulfilling it will be when we see the Lord Jesus face to face and when he embraces us and welcomes us as his own. Yes, it can be hard waiting when everyone else has families and when the church even sadly falls into talking as if 
families were all that mattered. We need to look to the Lord Jesus, the true lover of our soul, our true spouse, King Jesus. There's some brief comments. I want to just finally, uh, to conclude, come back to verse 11. You might be thinking, why did I skip over verse 11 in chapter 6? Where it says, that is what some of you were. I don't know about you, but sometimes we can come, can't we? And we can look at this list that we had read uh, in verses 9 and 10. And we know that we've really, at times, have messed up, haven't we? We've messed up. And sometimes we know we're not actually over it. Sometimes it's something recent. Sometimes it's something in the past. Sometimes we carry around scars, deep scars, about all kinds of things. And sometimes we feel dirty or defiled. Somehow we feel uh, unclean. Well, I want us to keep in mind this. Firstly, keep in mind that when it comes to Jesus, every single one of us has been unfaithful to him. Isn't that what it means, isn't it, to be a, a sinner? is to be unfaithful to him. So whatever we've done, whether it's sexual immorality, greed, or slander, or gossip, it's nothing to what we've done to Jesus, to the one that we've been unfaithful to. If you take a chance to look through the Bible and look how many times the Bible, uh, in the Bible God talks about his people, his bride, his special chosen people being unfaithful and chasing after other gods, you'll see it's time after time. It's written through the, the pages of Scripture. And, and if um, you're not faithful to him spiritually, to God, it's like, it's like adultery. It's like uh, adultery. Many, many times have we have done that. And he sees that way. He has made us. He sustains us. And often we're giving our hearts away to something else or to someone else who is not God. And sometimes it's money, sometimes it's relationships, sometimes it's sex, sometimes it's power, sometimes it's status, sometimes it's all sorts of things that we do. We are unfaithful to him. And we do it all the time. And that's the first thing we need to notice. But wonderfully, and beautifully, and secondly, yet time after time he is ready to forgive. Again and again, he comes to us seeking to restore us, to receive us, to forgive us again and again. Why? Verse 11, that is what some of you were. And that's what some of you were, but you were washed. You were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. In God's sight, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, through dying in our place, we are seen by him as whiter than white. We are seen as if we were in our wedding clothes. That's why bride is white, isn't it? Readying ourselves for the bridegroom, King Jesus. 
So when we talk about all these things about LLF and same-sex marriage and divorce and relationships and singleness and all important things, or whether we're talking about whether it's love that we fall in love with money or or, or greed or um, whether we're caught up with power or status or whatever it might be, we must remember the real infidelity, the real unfaithfulness has been committed by us. And we're all in the same boat, every single one of us. And we're in need of the forgiveness of Jesus. We're in need of the cross to restore us. And he has done that. That's what some of you were. But I see you as washed. I see you as justified. I see you as sanctified. While you were still a long way off, the father ran, didn't he? So uh, if you are haunted by the past of some of these things, I just want you to know, I want you to know that you don't need to be. That you are forgiven. That you're washed, sanctified, justified. And perhaps I could just leave you with the thought of um, the story where Jesus comes to an adulterous woman in John 8. You may be familiar with that. He said to the woman, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go now, leave your life of sin. And there, even in that phrase, what, what balance we see, what heart of God's grace and truth at the same time, where we often go wrong. He doesn't say, you know, go pull up your socks, try a bit harder, and see if we can come back next week and you've improved. No, that's not what he says. Nor does he say the opposite thing. Neither does he say, I do not condemn you and your lifestyle doesn't matter. He doesn't say that either, does he? He doesn't say that. I do not condemn you. Go and leave your lifestyle. You see, change. When you've been shown grace and love, it brings change. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Father God, we come before you acknowledging that we muck up many times. We fail you. We fall into sin. Father, we pray that we will look to the Lord Jesus, to the one who has washed us and justified us and sanctified us through the work on the cross. We pray, Father, that when we fall into sin, we will run back to you. And we thank you that you are always ready to receive, always ready to welcome us. You're always ready to forgive. And we pray that you will continue that work of sanctification, that transformation within us, readying us to inherit the kingdom of God, that we may enjoy your presence, being with our true love, the one who will satisfy us, fulfill us forever. In his name we pray. Amen.